Section 52 of La Samoire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Lazarus. La Samoire by Emile Zola. Translated by Ernest A. Vizitelli. Fourth part of Chapter 11. No doubt Gervaise did not hear. She had begun to scrub the floor again, with her back bent and dragging herself along with a frog-like motion. She still had to sweep the dirty water out into the gutter and then do the final rinsing. After a pause, Lantier, who felt bored, raised his voice again. "'Do you know, Badang?' he cried. "'I met your boss yesterday in the Rue de Rivoli.' He looked awfully down in the mouth. He hasn't six months' life left in his body. Ha! After all, with the life he leads. He was talking about the emperor. The policeman did not raise his eyes, but curtly answered, If you were the government, you wouldn't be so fat. Oh, my dear fellow, if I were the government, rejoined the hatter, suddenly affecting an air of gravity, things would go on rather better. I give you my word for it. Thus, their foreign policy. Why, for some time past it has been enough to make a fellow sweat. If I, I who speak to you, only knew a journalist to inspire him with my ideas. He was growing animated, and as he finished crunching his barley sugar, he opened a drawer from which he took a number of jujubes, which he swallowed while gesticulating. That's quite simple. Before anything else I should give Poland her independence again, and I should establish a great Scandinavian state to keep the giant of the north at bay. Then I should make a republic out of all the little German states. As for England, she's scarcely to be feared. If she budged ever so little, I should send a hundred thousand men to India. Add to that, I should send the Sultan back to Mecca and the Pope to Jerusalem, belaboring their backs with the butt-end of a rifle. Eh? Europe would soon be clean. Come, Badang, just look here. He paused to take five or six jujubes in his hand. Why, it wouldn't take longer than to swallow these. And he threw one jujube after another into his open mouth. The emperor has another plan, said the policeman, after reflecting for a couple of minutes. Now oh, forget it, rejoined the hatter. We know what his plan is. All Europe is laughing at us. Every day the Tuileries footmen find your boss under the table between a couple of high-society floozies. Poisson rose to his feet. He came forward and placed his hand on his heart, saying, You hurt me, August. Discuss, but don't evolve personalities. Thereupon Virginie intervened, bidding them stop their row. She didn't care a fig for Europe. How could two men who shared everything else— always be disputing about politics. For a minute they mumbled some indistinct words. Then the policeman, in view of showing that he harboured no spite, produced the cover of his little box, which he had just finished. It bore the inscription in marquetry, To Auguste, a token of friendship. Lantier, feeling exceedingly flattered, lounged back and spread himself out so that he almost sat upon Virginie, and the husband viewed the scene with his face the colour of an old wall, and his bleared eyes fairly expressionless. 
but all the same, at moments the red hairs of his moustache stood up on end of their own accord in a very singular fashion, which would have alarmed any man who was less sure of his business than the hatter. This beast of a lantier had the quiet cheek which pleases ladies. As Poisson turned his back, he was seized with the idea of printing a kiss on Madame Poisson's left eye. As a rule, he was stealthily prudent, but when he had been disputing about politics, he risked everything, so as to show the wife his superiority. These gloating caresses, cheekily stolen behind the policeman's back, revenged him on the empire which had turned France into a house of quarrels. Only on this occasion he had forgotten Gervaise's presence. She had just finished rinsing and wiping the shop, and she stood near the counter waiting for her thirty sous. However, the kiss on Virginie's eye left her perfectly calm, as being quite natural, and as part of a business she had no right to mix herself up in. Virginie seemed rather vexed. She threw the thirty sous on to the counter in front of Gervaise. The latter did not budge, but stood there waiting, still palpitating with the effort she had made in scrubbing, and looking as soaked and as ugly as a dog fished out of the sewer. "'Then she didn't tell you anything?' she asked the hatter at last. "'Who?' he cried. "'Oh, yes, you mean Nana. No, nothing else. What a tempting mouth she has, the little hussy. Real strawberry jam.' Gervaise went off with her thirty sous in her hand. The holes in her shoes spat water forth like pumps. They were real musical shoes, and played a tune as they left moist traces of their broad soles along the pavement. In the neighborhood, the feminine tipplers of her own class now related that she drank to console herself for her daughter's misconduct. She herself, when she gulped down her dram of spirits on the counter, assumed a dramatic air and tossed the liquor into her mouth, wishing it would do for her. And on the days when she came home boozed, she stammered that it was all through grief. But honest folks shrugged their shoulders. They knew what that meant, ascribing the effects of the peppery fire of l'Assommoir to grief indeed. At all events, she ought to have called it bottled grief, no doubt, at the beginning, she couldn't digest Nana's flight. All the honest feelings remaining in her revolted at the thought, and besides, as a rule, a mother doesn't like to have to think that her daughter, at that very moment, perhaps is being familiarly addressed by the first chance comer. But Gervaise was already too stultified, with a sick head and a crushed heart, to think of the shame for long. With her it came and went. She remained sometimes for a week together without thinking of her daughter, and then suddenly a tender or an angry feeling seized hold of her, sometimes when she had her stomach empty, at others when it was full. A furious longing to catch Nana in some corner, where she would perhaps have kissed her, or perhaps have beaten her, according to the fancy of the moment. Whenever these thoughts came over her, Gervaise looked on all sides in the street with the eyes of a detective. Ah! If she had only seen her little sinner, how quickly she would have brought her home again. The neighborhood was being turned topsy-turvy that year. The boulevard Magenta and the boulevard Ornano were being pierced. They were doing away with the old barriere poissonniere and cutting right through the outer boulevard. The district could not be recognized. The whole of one side of the Rue de Poissonniere had been pulled down.
From the Rue de la Goutte d'Or a large clearing could be seen, a dash of sunlight and open air, and in place of the gloomy buildings which had hidden the view in this direction, there rose up on a boulevard or nano a perfect monument, a six-storied house, carved all over like a church, with clear windows, which, with their embroidered curtains, seemed symbolical of wealth. This white house, standing just in front of the street, illuminated it with a jet of light, as it were, and every day it caused discussions between Lantier and Poisson. Gervaise had several times had tidings of Nana. There are always ready tongues anxious to pay you a sorry compliment. Yes, she had been told that the hussy had left her old gentleman, just like the inexperienced girl she was. She had gotten along famously with him, petted, adored, and free too, if she had only known how to manage the situation. But youth is foolish, and she had no doubt gone off with some young rake, no one knew exactly where. What seemed certain was that one afternoon she had left her old fellow on the Place de la Bastille, just for half a minute, and he was still waiting for her to return. Other persons swore they had seen her since dancing on her heels at the Grand Hall of Folly in the Rue de la Chapelle. Then it was that Gervaise took it into her head to frequent all the dancing places of the neighborhood. She did not pass in front of a public ballroom without going in. Coupeau accompanied her. At first they merely made the round of the room, looking at the drabs who were jumping about, but one evening, as they had some coin, they sat down and ordered a large bowl of hot wine in view of regaling themselves, and waiting to see if Nana would turn up. At the end of a month or so they had practically forgotten her, but they frequented the halls for their own pleasure. Liking to look at the dancers, they would remain for hours without exchanging a word, resting their elbows on the table, stultified amidst the quaking of the floor, and yet no doubt amusing themselves as they stared with pale eyes at the barriere women in the stifling atmosphere and ruddy glow of the hall. It happened one November evening that they went into the grand hall of folly to warm themselves. Out of doors a sharp wind cut you across the face, but the hall was crammed. There was a thundering big swarm inside, people at all the tables, people in the middle, people up above, quite an amount of flesh. Yes, those who cared for tripes could enjoy themselves. When they had made the round twice without finding a vacant table, they decided to remain standing and wait till somebody went off. Coupeau was teetering on his legs in a dirty blouse with an old cloth cap which had lost its peak flattened down on his head, and as he blocked the way he saw a scraggy young fellow who was wiping his coat-sleeve after elbowing him. "'Say,' cried Coupeau in a fury, as he took his pipe out of his black mouth, "'can't you apologize? And you play the disgusted one, just because a fellow wears a blouse?' The young man turned round and looked at the zinc-worker from head to foot. "'I'll teach you, you scraggy young scamp,' continued Coupeau, that the blouse is the finest garment out, yes, the garment of work. I'll wipe you if you like with my fists. Did one ever hear of such a thing? A near-do-well insulting a workman? Gervaise tried to calm him, but in vain he drew himself up in his rags in full view and struck his blouse, roaring, There's a man's chest under that. Thereupon the young man dived into the midst of the crowd, muttering, 
What a dirty blackguard! Coupeau wanted to follow and catch him. He wasn't going to let himself be insulted by a fellow with a coat on. Probably it wasn't even paid for. Some second-hand toggery to impress a girl with, without having to fork out a centime. If he caught the chap again, he'd bring him down on his knees and make him bow to the blouse. But the crush was too great. There was no means of walking. He and Gervaise turned slowly round the dancers. There were three rows of sightseers packed close together, whose faces lighted up whenever any of the dancers showed off. As Coupeau and Gervaise were both short, they raised themselves up on tiptoe, trying to see something besides the chignon and hats that were bobbing about. The cracked brass instruments of the orchestra were furiously thundering a quadrille, a perfect tempest which made the hall shake, while the dancers, striking the floor with their feet, raised a cloud of dust which dimmed the brightness of the gas. The heat was unbearable. "'Look there,' said Gervaise suddenly. "'Look at what?' "'Why, at that velvet hat over there.' They raised themselves up on tiptoe. On the left hand there was an old black velvet hat trimmed with ragged feathers bobbing about, regular hearse's plumes. It was dancing a devil of a dance, this hat, bouncing and whirling round, diving down and then springing up again. Coupeau and Gervaise lost sight of it as the people round about moved their heads, but then suddenly they saw it again, swaying farther off with such droll effrontery that folks laughed merely at the sight of this dancing hat, without knowing what was underneath it. "'Well?' asked Coupeau. "'Don't you recognize that head of hair?' muttered Gervaise in a stifled voice. "'May my head be cut off if it isn't her!' With one shove, the zinc-worker made his way through the crowd. "'Mon Dieu, yes, it was Nana. And in a nice pickle, too. She had nothing on her back but an old silk dress, all stained and sticky from having wiped the tables of boozing dens, and with its flounces so torn that they fell in tatters round about. Not even a bit of a shawl over her shoulders. And to think that the hussy had had such an attentive, loving gentleman— and had yet fallen to this condition, merely for the sake of following some rascal who had beaten her, no doubt. Nevertheless, she had remained fresh and insolent, with her hair as frizzy as a poodle's, and her mouth bright pink under that rascally hat of hers. "'Just wait a bit, I'll make her dance,' resumed Coupeau. Naturally enough, Nana was not on her guard. You should have seen how she wriggled about— she twisted to the right and to the left, bending double as if she were going to break herself in two, and kicking her feet as high as her partner's face. A circle had formed about her, and this excited her even more. She raised her skirts to her knees and really let herself go in a wild dance, whirling and turning, dropping to the floor in splits, and then jigging and bouncing. Coupeau was trying to force his way through the dancers, and was disrupting the quadrille. "'I tell you, it's my daughter,' he cried. "'Let me pass.' Nana was now dancing backwards, sweeping the floor with her flounces, rounding her figure and wriggling it, so as to look all the more tempting. She suddenly received a masterly blow just on the right cheek. She raised herself up and turned quite pale on recognizing her father and mother. Bad luck, and no mistake.' "'Turn him out!' howled the dancers. 
But Coupeau, who had just recognized his daughter's cavalier as the scraggy young man in the coat, did not care a fig for what the people said. "'Yes, it's us,' he roared, eh? "'You didn't expect it, so we catch you here, and with a whipper-snapper, too, who insulted me a little while ago.' Gervaise, whose teeth were tight-set, pushed him aside, exclaiming, "'Shut up! There's no need of so much explanation!' And, stepping forward, she dealt Nana a couple of hearty cuffs. The first knocked down the feathered hat on one side, and the second left a red mark on the girl's white cheek. Nana was too stupefied either to cry or resist. The orchestra continued playing. The crowd grew angry and repeated savagely, "'Turn them out! Turn them out!' "'Come, make haste,' resumed Gervaise. "'Just walk in front and don't try to run off. You shall sleep in prison if you do.' The scraggy young man had prudently disappeared. Nana walked ahead, very stiff and still stupefied by her bad luck. Whenever she showed the least unwillingness, a cuff from behind brought her back to the direction of the door. And thus they went out, all three of them, amidst the jeers and banter of the spectators, whilst the orchestra finished playing the finale with such thunder that the trombones seemed to be spitting bullets. End of fourth part of chapter 11 Recording by David Lazarus